This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new vision jet from Cirrus. And Bell's Nexus steals the Consumer Electronics Show. Also, if the shutdown has affected you, knowledge testing is active again. Good news out of the flight training department. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, you met up with our colleague and our friend, uh, AOPA's airspace guru, Rune Duke, for this week. I sure did, Ian, and we had a great chat. I tried to stump the professor. Rune's the, the aviation airspace guru, as you mentioned, so I threw some acronyms and abbreviations at him. We had a fun time going over that. We did talk a little bit about the government shutdown as we record this. We're in day 33. It might end soon, we do hope. And we talked a little bit about some AOPA initiatives for 2019. Cool, cool. And shameless plug, uh, Rune is just one of many people who work in our D.C. office. So AOPA has a really extensive legislative staff, legislative affairs staff, who work with Congress and the FAA. And so Rune is just one of many folks who work down there, but definitely one of the good ones. So looking forward to that conversation. And he's a, he's a competent pilot, a former air traffic controller. We'll hear all about that when we talk to him a little bit later. Very good point. Good point. So let's get started. Cirrus, surprisingly, I think, coming out with a new vision jet already, the the G2, the Generation 2 SF-50. Indeed, Ian. Now, I've only sat in one. I haven't flown one, but it's a swift jet, and it's really nice uh, for, you know, basically for folks who don't have $20 million. Tom Haynes has flown it, and, um, and he illuminated uh, basically five or six different improvements that really are helping make this jet in its second generation really a standout. Yeah. Now, typically, we, we've got this joke uh, in aviation media that's like, oh, new uh, new airplane, new color scheme, you know. But Cirrus, I got to say, they've made some really substantial changes here, the first of which, and the most important, is auto throttles, which on a jet in this class is just unheard of. That's true. That's something that you normally see on a jet that costs about 10 times as much. They didn't just stop there, Ian. They went ahead and certified the aircraft for flight up to flight level 310, which is 3,000 feet higher than the original. Yeah. And that comes along with 
approval for flight and reduced vertical separation and minimum airspace, which is another improvement. And that airspace starts at flight level 290. Yeah, that's right. And so they got a little bit of boost out of Williams, so to speak. Uh, a little bit more thrust on those uh, FJ33s, which allows it to go a little bit higher. Or you can stay down lower and go a little bit faster. So all around, really good performance improvements. And then they did some really, I think, some smart stuff on the interior. Well, they did. And before we get to that, and, and you can tell us a little bit more about that, but another thing that struck me was that the Generation 2 model, because of the lower fuel burn and a slight decrease in weight throughout the airplane, it can actually carry another 170 pounds, and that is an FAA standard weight for another passenger. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And to get improved performance while you uh, get increased payload is, is pretty awesome. Um, that interior, by the way, it's it's they call it their executive configuration. The Sears has always had this kind of unique interior seating arrangement. So what they've done is they've taken the two kind of, we'll call them back seats. I mean, they're, they're middle seats, um, but they've given the option to widen them so you can have these really nice wide sort of first class seats. In fact, it looks a little bit like a first class airline cabin seat. And you can put like a console between the two with cup holders and then fold out tables as well. So maybe looking maybe ahead at like the charter market, um, a little more corporate, that sort of thing. That's a that's a smart move. It does really sound like it's got more of a business feel rather than the personal jet feel with those new improvements on the interior. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the prices start at $2.38 million. And that's up a little bit from the 2017 price of $2 million. But a f- fully loaded model could top out at about $2.7 million, $2.75 million rather, which is no small change, but still very competitive in that marketplace. It really is. And I, I think what you'll find is people who are dedicated to Cirrus, who love Cirrus, Cirrus fans, it's like, yeah, okay, it's, it's a bigger check for them, but they'll write it. To get those improvements, they'll absolutely go for it. So I think that's a that's a smart move all around for Cirrus. All right. So moving on, Bell. So the Consumer Electronics Show uh, just wrapped up in Las Vegas. And Bell was there, as they've been going out for the past, I guess, year or two, to showcase more consumer-type stuff like eVTOL, which, you know, we've talked about a lot here. And so they brought this Nexus cabin concept, uh, which is their eVTOL concept. And I think what they did here is really cool. And really smart. I'm, I, you know, the eVTOL stuff. It's like I'm sort of kind of in the middle here on whether I think it's going to be, you know, the next big thing or whether it's going to be, you know, 100 years from now or whatever. But, but I do think that they use the show for a really interesting purpose. Well, the the Nexus aircraft itself is interesting. It's a six rotor vertical takeoff device. But yeah, you touched on something, Ian, that was really neat, and it kind of makes sense at the Consumer Electronics Show to do this. But they collected a lot of data from folks who are kind of poking around on these simulators, and they're going to use some of that to, to determine what interface will be intuitive to the, to the average operator of these vehicles. So it's kind of like a human interface investigation. When mine, they're mining a lot of data from that, and I think that's real interesting as well. It is interesting because I think when you, you, know, you stop and think about it for about two seconds and you realize that these eVTOLs, I mean, they're not going to be able to have traditional flight controls even if you have you know if you if you agree that the it's the human has to be in the loop here at least initially they're going to have to completely rethink the controls because you know a powered lift aircraft like we have you know today with the, like the osprey i mean those are incredibly complicated to fly and you know tons and tons of training and expense and it's like if for eVTOL to be effective there's no way you're going to be able to train helicopter pilots uh, or vertical lift pilots in the same way 
Well, that's a really good point, Ian, and, and I know you're a helicopter pilot. I'm just a helicopter student. There's already a lot to learn when you're flying a helicopter. It's, it's not very intuitive, at least it wasn't for me. And so mining some of this data here to, to talk about the human pilots and, you know, and what they're doing to see and avoid other aircraft and how to respond to unusual situations, I think that is an interesting way to go. And so that squarely puts them in the camp that autonomy will come later. Yes. And uh, in Bell's future, autonomy will come later. And that is in opposition sort of to Airbus. Which is yeah. which they're bringing to uh, market a, a vehicle called the Vahana, and so that's a full autonomy vehicle from the start. And so that's two yeah. different two different complex ways to attack the same problem, I guess, to get technology off the ground, so to speak. Yeah, and I suppose that's not terribly surprising given Airbus and their history and automation and, and pilot assist that they would be going the fully autonomous route, um, and Bell doing kind of the human in the loop. I think. Bell's looking at it probably from a practical standpoint, which is to get these things certified and actually flying. You're going to be able to do it a lot faster if you have humans in the loop, whereas Airbus is looking at it probably more from a technological standpoint. So um, pretty interesting to see kind of where we'll go there. I think that the uh, key takeaway from all this, besides the, the data that they got from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, is the fact that it looks like that there's a race now, that we really have a couple of heavy mm -hmm. hitters that are out there trying to move ahead. And I, I think that the infrastructure is really going to be the, the part that holds us back, Ian, as we move forward in all this. That's a great point. And hey, just really quickly, kind of related to that, you may have seen the FAA has released a new drone rules, or at least proposal, uh, which is starting to like open that up a little bit. Yeah, and this is interesting as well, because this development potentially can allow drone operators to operate at night and over people. Formerly, just a couple of folks or entities, rather, had been given permission to do that. CNN is one of the pioneers that had operated a very small drone with the blades that were encapsulated in a guard, if you will, and they were able to do to uh, operate that over people if they so chose, and they haven't deployed it all that much. Yeah, it is interesting, and it's it's also interesting that like right at the same time, Canada came out and with even more restrictive rules than the U.S., saying that you're going to need to have a pilot certificate and go through these renewal processes, and so um, it's 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 pretty fascinating to see kind of the different directions people are going. Well, and the other thing to remember is that there's a draft revision to the FAA drone regulations. Now, don't forget these drone regulations have been virtually unchanged for a couple of years since they were released initially. Mm -hmm. And there's now a 60-day comment period. Well, I should back that up. When this is published in the uh, NPRM, there will be a 60-day comment period. And it hasn't quite yet been published, but that is expected to happen very soon. Yeah, yeah, great point. Speaking of uh, shutdown and various effects, uh, knowledge testing this is, you know, one of these unforeseen um, fallouts from the shutdown. What happened is that initially it was clear that during the shutdown, uh, designated examiners, so DPEs and, and other designees, could continue to operate it. So if I was ready to take my check ride and I would did it through a DPE, uh, I could do that. You know, DPEs can can give the certificate on the spot and they could write it out by hand and everything would be fine. The the hook there was that knowledge testing initially was shut down. And why was that shut down? Because I think this is the interesting part of this. It's kind of like, you know, the man bites dog kind of a story. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, really quick headline is the FAA's computer system couldn't talk to the contractor's computer system which I guess we shouldn't be terribly surprised about. So, you know, what should have been an automated process. So you take the knowledge test at a contractor's computer. They send the results directly to the FAA. The FAA processes it, sends it into IACRA, that pilot certificate um, application program. You go to the DP, it's all there in a bow ready to go. Well, FAA's computers apparently couldn't accept uh, what the contractor was sending during the shutdown. And so as a result, everything was kind of closed for a little while. And you wrote about this and know a little bit more about it than me, but what struck me as being, you know, something a little cumbersome was that potential pilots would have to get those certificates uh, over there manually or some kind of way. Yeah. It, it sounds like that would be hard to do to figure out where to take that and how to act on it. Yeah, it is. You know, as the shutdown kind of drags on, it'll be interesting to see what happens because the, um, you know, assuming that your test isn't an IACRA, it's like you, there's a manual process, and then even when you do pass the check ride, that paperwork's got to go to the FISDO, and then it goes to Oak City, and so there's just a pile of those sitting on the FISDO desks because those folks aren't working. And so chances are, if you have a temporary certificate and you've gotten it during the shutdown or even directly before it, chances are that's going to expire. And so you know, I would say just keep checking AOPA's website, call in. And um, after the shutdown is over and ask what's going to happen, because in the past, I think what they've done is just give uh, they've given extensions to those. And we do have a phone number right here that's uh, readily available and handy. It's 800-872-2672 mm-hmm. if you have any questions about your status or the practical test issues. So that's a good number at AOPA, 800-872-2672. Yeah, great point. So speaking of flight training, David, you know, the AOPA Air Safety Institute and Liberty University came together recently to create this report that I just think is so cool. It's the Fatal Flight Training Accident Report, and it's a 16-year study, so really comprehensive, on accidents that occurred during flight training. And the, the results, I think, are a little surprising. And you know what? I think that there are several takeaways from this one, Ian. I'm glad you brought it up. The number one stat that stood out in my mind was that overall accident rate, the overall rate has decreased about 35% from 2000 through 2015. Mm-hmm. And and the number two thing in my mind is that the general aviation overall, throughout general aviation, overall flight training is gradually becoming safer. And that's those are two key stats that stood out to me right at the beginning. Yep. Uh, no, I think that's really important. You're right. I mean, you know, the headline to all this is, you know, no fatal accidents, of course, is where people are always um, aspiring to. But if uh, if that can't happen, uh, a rate that's trending down is is a, a great headline there. And during the, the study, they did determine that loss of control during flight training was still high at 54 percent mm-hmm. and mid-air collisions followed at 10 percent yeah so those are two things that we continue to work on um, during this analysis of 240 fatal instructional accidents yeah this this to me was i think probably the most interesting piece of it is that loss of control was the number one cause of the fatal instructional accidents which you shouldn't be surprised about because the way that uh, ICAO, I guess, and the FAA and NTSB, the way they, they categorize these accidents, loss of control is a really big bucket. It is. And so it includes all kinds of different stuff. But after that, to have midair collisions, number two, I just thought was incredible. I had no idea. I think that's high. That 10% seems high, especially in this day and age with ADSB and portable ADSB. I mean, 
golly, for 200 bucks and an iPad, you, you can have devices helping you look out the window too. Yeah, yep. That's true. And so another, I think, couple of takeaways here, loss of control. One thing that's important to note is I think students are always afraid of stalls, you know, of practicing stalls. Uh And they say, you know, they think there's some sort of risk there. And of course, there's always a little bit of risk. But what's really interesting is that the the intentional practice of stalls only accounted for 5% of those loss of control accidents. So the, the actual practice of stalls is relatively very safe. So I don't think people need to worry about that so much. That's an interesting point. The other thing is that mid-air collisions, where, you know, historically, where have we been told that they occur? Near airports. Yeah, absolutely. They found that wasn't the case. My, <laughs> that is startling. <laughs> you startled me. Well, I know this, this it's really not a laughing matter, but so where did that occur if, it was, if they weren't mostly around airports? Where do we find a lot of that? Yeah, so there were 24 training flights in those 16 years that ended in a fatal mid-air collision. Of those, I'm quoting from the report here, 71% occurred outside the airport environment. That's interesting. Yeah, so almost three quarters. And of the accidents that occurred in the airport environment, five of them were in Class D controlled airspace. And only wow. two only two were at non-towered airports. That's interesting. So it's more than... More than double the uh, the amount of non-towered airport fatalities were at towered fields. Yeah, it's five to two. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that was amazing, and and I think goes to sort of debunk a lot of what we know about mid-air collisions and what we've been taught about mid-air collisions, at least in in terms of the training environment. Well, I wonder if uh, I wonder if if the amount of traffic you know, in a local airport, I mean, I guess it could work against you or, or it could work for you. Yeah. If everyone's working together and it's a non-towered field and most people are, are talking to each other, there, there is a little bit more awareness at times. If you're relying on another set of eyes, like an air traffic controller, maybe there's a, a little bit of a tendency to kind of let things go and, and you're not being as vigil as you can be, as yeah. vigilant as you can be as a pilot in command or under training and and more or less counting on the air traffic control tower to help you out. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh I suppose as time goes on people will dig into this a little deeper, but if you want to read it the report and if you're in the flight training world at all, whether a student instructor, flight school or whatever, I absolutely think you should go to AOPA's website, look for the fatal flight training accident report or just google it. And uh not exactly happy reading obviously, but but uh important and really illuminating. Required reading, we'll say. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and don't be afraid of don't be afraid of the power off and power on stalls because that's an important part of learning and yeah. just one of the things that one of the tools we need to keep in our tool belt to make sure we are flying safer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's very true. Very true. Hey, let's end on a high note. I want to talk about money, about scholarships. Oh, I like talking about money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, AOPA, especially if it's free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to you and I, unfortunately, but. Um, AOPA recently announced a million dollars, a million bucks in scholarships for high school students and teachers. And Ian, that is 10 times the amount that we had been awarding. And this accounts for 80 $10,000 scholarships for aviation mining high school students and 20 teachers dedicated to advancing aviation education. That's a million dollars for 100 people. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, you can imagine, you know, some scholarships, a thousand, two thousand bucks. I mean, every little bit helps, obviously. And I think those are great efforts. Um, But ten thousand dollars, it's like that's going to that will get you over the finish line. That is going to get you a pilot certificate. 
And so for 80 kids across the country this year, they're going to be able to become pilots as a result of these scholarships. And we should tip our hats to the Ray Foundation for providing a $1 million grant to make these 100 scholarships possible. And also for applicants, just a reminder that the 2019 You Can Fly High School Flight Training Scholarship deadline is April the 2nd this year. Yep, that's right. So get online, search on the AOPA website for a flight training scholarship. Look there. It'll tell you how to apply. The process isn't difficult, but it does take a little bit of time. And can't say this enough, there are hundreds of applications every year that aren't even considered because they're not complete. So make sure you take the time to complete those. Also, you know, David, you mentioned the Ray Foundation, which I think um, absolutely, this is all because of the Ray Foundation. So we can't say enough good things about them and enough thank yous. Um, If you want to help the You Can Fly program to bring more pilots into into the fold like this or anything else that You Can Fly is doing, the Ray Foundation is doing a yearly challenge, a matching challenge for AOPA members and, and donors to the You Can Fly program. So from now to August 31st, um, the Ray Foundation will match every dollar of donations per dollar up to $2 million bucks. So potential to uh, get a $4 million grant to the You Can Fly program. That's outstanding. And, and also just to remind our podcast listeners, if they have not heard of the Ray Foundation, it's a... Uh, it's in memory of the founder, James C. Ray, uh, who uh, lived from 1923 to 2017. And he was a pilot, an entrepreneur, and clearly a philanthropist who wanted the population, the pilot population, to continue to grow um, and grow and grow. Yep, that's absolutely right. Okay, hey, so let's bring on Rune, David. I think uh, this is a great idea talking to Rune about just the, the just hundreds of acronyms there out in the airspace world, and he's such a fun guy uh, to talk to. So really looking forward to hearing from him. Welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast, Rune Duke. You're here um, from AOPA's Government Affairs Office, and your official title is Senior Director of Government Affairs for Airspace and Air Traffic. Happy to be here, Dave. Well, Rune, tell us a little bit about what you do at AOPA, and then we'll get into some of your flying background, too. Absolutely. Well, there's uh, there's about 10 of us down in the D.C. office who do government affairs. So there's a few lobbyists, and then there's a few uh, folks like me who deal in regulatory issues. So specifically, we're going over to the FAA pretty much every day to work the issues most important to general aviation pilots, whether it's air traffic control issues, airspace issues, cross-border or airman certification, aircraft certification, the whole gamut. And you know what? Uh, you guys are doing something that a lot of folks who are AOPA members, they just don't realize what goes on behind the scenes. It's, you're sort of the unsung heroes of AOPA. We, we try to do uh, a lot of articles to keep people aware, but it is uh, a constant effort uh, by us to, to make sure the FAA is keeping us in mind. And uh, we're that loud voice in their ear saying, hey, don't forget about us and let's fix those issues and make flying fun and accessible. You're you are so right about that, and we're so glad that you're down there working in the trenches, so to speak, and uh, and advocating for all of AFPA. Now, folks uh, who are listening to the Hangar Talk podcast might not know, but you are an aviator. You're up here today uh, learning some multi-engine work. 
That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, we find ourselves with a little extra time with this government shutdown and making the most of it. I'm doing a little extra training. That's pretty, pretty interesting. And I know from talking with you and working with you in the past that you are a former air traffic controller yourself, right? Give us a little bit about that background. Sure. Yeah. I, I did six years in the military doing air traffic control, all of it tower time, um, talking to uh, a range of helicopters and fixed wing, uh, you name it, we, we spoke to them. Well, we appreciate your uh, service to the country. And also just to let our podcast listeners know, so that really puts the meat behind, you know, what you guys are doing. You know what you're talking about, and you have a vast amount of experience, and you're representative of the entire government affairs team. Everyone really has a vast amount of experience. They, they are the uh, subject matter expert in, in their department, right? And so the FAA really does listen to us. A lot of the times we're leading the work groups, we're leading the conferences, we're leading the uh, committees, um, simply because we are those respected parties who can draft and participate and speak with authority about these topics. And we're going to get into some of that a little bit later uh, on the podcast, but to start out with something kind of fun and lighthearted, we're going to, I'm going to ask you about some abbreviations because these are near and dear to my heart and your heart and a lot of aviators as well. And let's just go through them and let's see, let's see how many of these that folks might be familiar with. Uh, softball to start with, AIM. Okay, the Aeronautical Information Manual. Um, and I, I think most pilots are aware of that. What they may not know is it comes out several times a year. So when you buy it once for Christmas, there's actually new editions coming out a couple times each year. And so we try to highlight those in our articles. Outstanding and good information. The ACS, this is something relatively new. Uh, Airman Certification Standards. Uh, my partner, David Ord, he's, he's uh, leading that task force for constant improvement to the ACS standards. And something that most people need to get on the, the choo-choo train for this before January of next year, ADSB. Yep, Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. <laughs> so that's going to uh, keep the skies and the airways a little bit safer for all of us. That is that is the future. That is next gen right there, ADSB. Now, I don't deal with this too much because I'm a VFR pilot and an instrument student, but RVSM. Yep, Reduced Vertical Separation Minima, and that is uh, Flight Level 290 and above. Um, and so that was a, a rule change a few years ago where they went from 2,000 feet vertical separation to 1,000 feet between aircraft. And there's constantly uh, uh, improvements and efficiencies being made for that airspace. So that's part of the next-gen uh, airspace as things start to roll out. So you can get reduced minimums more and more as, I guess, technology improves. That's right, yeah. And we're not just talking about vertical separation, but also horizontal separation, hopefully changing those separation standards over time okay. with more data. Um, and then, uh, you know, we were talking about ADSB, but ADSB is being leveraged to improve the authorization process for RVSM airspace. That is interesting stuff. Again, I knew that we'd have some fun with this. And now, a couple that I'm that I wasn't familiar with this until Ian and I were talking about it recently. The NTAP notices to airmen publication. It's one of those lesser known uh, <laughs> publications by the FAA, but uh, they hide all kinds of important information in it. And uh, it's been a joint effort between the FAA and us to uh, uh, slim it down to just the critical information and put the uh, critical information in a more visible place for pilots. Exactly, because it could be information overload, and then you don't know what's important and what's not. And, and when we talk notices to airmen, those are already information overload. Well, it is, and uh, and we all pay attention to our notums before we fly, and uh, AFA tells everyone to do that, and it's a great 
obviously a great habit to get into, and if you don't, I mean, woe beyond to you. Okay, so uh, now this is something that came up in a story that you, that you were involved with just recently, OEG. Oh, Obstruction Evaluation Group. Uh, that's an office within the FAA. Uh, it's an, uh, an office we interface with pretty regularly because they are the group that deals with obstruction standards and what constitutes uh, adverse uh, impact to aviation versus something that is maybe uh, not an impact. All right. And then uh, GBT, I have no idea what that is. That is a ground-based transmitter. So, uh, it, you know, in the United States, we went to a ground-based system of ADSB. You might have heard Canada with Arion is looking at a space-based network. Okay. But in the U.S., we have all these different um, GBTs, ground-based transmitters, all over, and they provide the surveillance coverage that enables ADSB for air traffic. Okay, well, I guess I should have known what that is because I do use ADSB. I just didn't know how, you know, I didn't know the, I didn't know the abbreviation. Well, you also use it probably using FISB. And right. So these are the little uh, networks that are transmitting that uh, aeronautical and weather. Info. What's 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 FISB? Uh, Flight Information Service Broadcast. <laughs> yep. Got you going, man. Okay. Now uh, coming out of left field, PAJN. Uh, so PAGN <laughs> is um, Juno International Airport. Thought I'd stump you with that one. <laughs> I was trying to stump second. the professor. <laughs> okay, good job. Uh, NTAP, we talked about notices to airman publications. And uh, the ASRS, now I've used this before. Sure. Yeah, so this is the NASA's aviation safety reporting system. And these are those voluntary forms that pilots can fill out after a safety issue is encountered or any number of events just to register it with the uh, with NASA and with the FAA so the system as a whole can be improved from that experience. Yeah, I've used that before. I've, I've uh, I had something come up, and I would, I would encourage people to do that. That's something that we have in our back pocket that not many people know about. Absolutely. You know, and you can, you can uh, capture all kinds of different things within the NASA form, but let's not forget there's also a wildlife hazard reporting form. If you have a bird strike, there's a laser reporting form. There's all kinds of uh, GPS uh, anomaly reporting forms. So depending on what you encounter, the best thing to do is, is figure out how to report it because we all want to learn from it. And without that data, sometimes we can't get changes to move fast enough. That is so true, Rune. Thank you for pointing that out. Fantastic. Now, you are also a, a member, a participant of the ACM. This is the Aeronautical Charting Meeting. <laughs> and there was one here uh, not long ago here at our You Can Fly Learning Center. That's right. We've hosted uh, twice over the last couple of years, and this is all of the uh, FAA charting folks, government charting folks, including DOD, Jeppesen, um, uh, all the big airlines, uh, all the big associations, and we get together twice a year at ACM, and we talk about the charting changes we would like to see um, and what is proposed and what is the future of charting. So this is where we get done a lot of um, what our members are asking for. And then uh, my team on the e-media side, we go ahead and take that information, and we publicize it, we put that out in our e-pilot newsletter, our e-flight newsletter, and we also run it, typically we'll run it in the AOPA Pilot Magazine and Flight Training Magazine so that our members are up to speed on these different changes. Absolutely. All right, RP. 
uh, right pattern. <laughs> uh, now, you and I were interfacing on that a little bit, and tell me why that's important. And we Actually, that was part of the presentation, I thought, at the ACM or, or at another event. Yeah, so this was brought up at ACM was um, the differences in right pattern notation on the charts. And usually you see RP, and it indicates with a runway number, hey, I have to make right turns instead of the standard left turns. But if it's RP with an asterisk, that means you need to look in the chart supplement. It does oh. not mean RP asterisk equals all runways are right patterns. So it might be at that airport, it's only specific to one runway, perhaps. Well, and, and it might be, and that's why I have to look in the chart supplement, because generally it indicates RP is only applicable to certain types of aircraft. So okay. ultralights or gliders might be RP. All standard aircraft might be standard left. That is an interesting takeaway. That's, that is great. I'm glad I brought that one up. Now, H-E-M-S? So that's HEMS, uh, Helicopter Emergency Medical Services. Uh -huh. It's an old term. Uh, the current term is HAA, Helicopter Air Ambulance. Okay. And um, what we use HEMS for a lot of times is we're talking about the HEMS weather tool. And this is a different aspect of the Aviation Weather Center website, the ADDS website we uh -huh. all know and love. And if you check out the HEMS tool, it's a fantastic graphical interface for low-altitude weather. So that was designed with helicopters and, and life flights in mind, but it's also available for us to use on, you know, in, in our VFR world, I would guess, as well, as far as you know, low-altitude flying. That leads us to LOGO. And that would be the new name for what we're hoping to rename the, the HEMS weather tool, and it's the Low-Altitude Weather Graphical Overlay. So logo, and um, that that will hopefully expand the population of users for this fantastic low altitude tool. So again, this is something that we have as a tool in our tool belt that we might not be using as much as we could be using. That's right, and uh, specifically, what's great about this tool is it assimilates all kinds of different weather sources that pilots wouldn't normally have access to. So a lot of unofficial weather. So you have weather reporting at so many more locations and at oh. a higher density because you're flying in generally a smaller area and generally lower altitude. So we want a lot more surface weather reporting. Okay, so it, and basically it leads to a little bit more accuracy, if you will. It, it, well, it generally is just going to give you a lot more information, and some of it is a little bit of a different standard than the weather oh, uh, okay. AWOS that we're used to. Okay. Um, but that comes with interpolation and looking what's around all of these different sensors. Very good. Uh, we only have a few more to go, and we're going to get into the heavy stuff. So SAV. Surface Analysis and Visualization Tool. So SAV is really talking about obstructions. And this is a tool, SAV tool, is used for airport managers to determine what obstructions are around their airport. I think we have all been confronted with NOTAMs that says an instrument approach procedure might be not authorized at night. And we're all like, hey, why is that a thing? Why are we not authorizing an instrument approach at night? That's, that's what we should be flying at night. That Makes the sense safest to me. Thing. Right. But when you have an obstruction in the visual uh, surface, you might not be able to see it at night unless it's lit. And so this is a tool to help airport managers understand when they're going to have obstructions penetrating that visual surface so they can be proactive. This is something we've been working with the FAA on is we want to give the tools to the airport managers so they're proactive and we're not shutting down approaches or runways um, and being reactive. Well, what would be one example of that before we go on to our very last abbreviation? 
Sure. Well, for example, there's an airport out in Illinois right now that is dealing with some trees on the approach to one of their runways. And the trees grow year over year. And finally, they penetrated that 20 to 1 visual surface. And the FAA uh, issued a note saying you cannot fly an instrument approach at night to that runway. And so the airport has now used that tool to identify not only those trees that were penetrating that surface, but trees to other runways and are being proactive to cut those trees down ahead of time. So they're going out and they're trimming the canopies a little bit, or if it's a tree that's dead and eliminating the whole tree altogether, to keep that, basically to keep that safety factor in mind to use that instrument approach. Absolutely. And, you know, we see these notums and it's an inconvenience, but bottom line, it's a safety factor. So we have to address it and we have to make pilots aware of it. Understood. All right. And the last abbreviation for today, and, and folks have more, by the way, they could uh, email us and uh, we'll be glad to discuss them at a, at a future podcast. How about ASMT? Okay. That's the Airport Survey and Mapping Team. Uh, this is another office we uh, interface with very regularly, talking about obstructions, talking about airport standards, talking about the communication of that information. So everything we know and love about how uh, airports are charted, the size of the uh, ramps, the dimensions of the runways, these are those folks. And so we work with them on how to display that information to pilots so it's effective. Do you think that pilots are getting a better picture nowadays than they were a few years ago using some of this new technology? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, you know, with the ability to use your iPad, and over 80% of general aviation pilots are using an iPad with some type of uh, application, aviation-related, moving maps they have the ability to access more information than ever. And I think the FAA is really trying to leverage that and provide more information so pilots really can have a much bigger picture than they used to based on that limitation of paper. Paper is really still a limiting factor for the evolution to the iPad, but we're starting to get past that. Well, we used, it, wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that we had to kind of visualize in our mind where a storm system was and kind of sketch it out, you know, doing our, our pre-flight planning, things like that. And we've come a pretty long way since then. Well, and it's, that's still an important skill. You know, things fail in flight, and that's an important skill. But it's undoubtedly a, a safer system with pilots, you know, being responsible, understanding the limitations of the systems and being trained properly and using them within, you know, the proper uh, framework. Well, this is an interesting conversation. I'll have to come up with some additional abbreviations for us to do a part two segment. Okay. But, Rune, let's get, it, let's get into some of the nitty-gritty stuff that you guys are, are really immersed in right now. And as we record this podcast here on the 17th of January, we're in the midst of a government shutdown. And there's some important effects for GA pilots in, you know, in this environment. Go ahead and give us a couple of the key highlights of the effects that GA pilots can expect to see or are experiencing right now. Sure. And, yeah, with the shutdown, uh, that, that started December 22nd, so today is day 27. And I don't think anyone thought it would be lasting almost a month. And certainly right. significant effects on the federal workforce being furloughed right. or working without pay. And then the contractors. And I, I would highlight the FAA contractor workforce is a large workforce. I, I, I think there's a lot of people um, who are not federal employees who will just not get back pay. So we're, we're going to be dealing with the outcomes um, on a personal level for a long time and something we're sensitive to. And I, I've certainly seen you know, a lot of the aviation family come together, whether buying the controller's breakfast 
or maybe just saying over the frequency, hey, guys, appreciate what you're doing. I've heard that recently. Actually, yeah. just, we flew down to uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina this week, and, and we were very complimentary of the air traffic controllers. They did a great job in both directions. I didn't think about this for contractors. There are some air traffic control towers that are contractor towers, so they might be affected by this, too. I didn't even put that together. Well, and so there's also, um, you know, flight service is a contract for the FAA. That's right. But, you know, it depends, right? So flight service, they're certainly getting paid. A lot of the contract towers are certainly getting paid. Okay. Each one's a little bit different. So, no, they're they're um, probably fine and uh-huh. all getting paid. It's the federal workforce right now right. that's most affected. And it, I know I know about your uh, air, air traffic control background, and I'm not sure if you ever went to the academy in Oklahoma but, or did you shift careers before that time? So I went to Oklahoma City for, for some FAA training, such as uh, instrument flight procedure design, but I didn't go there for ATC school since that was a military school. Gotcha. Well, of course, they're shut down right now, too. That's right, and it's it's a big deal. I have some friends who are uh, getting ready to go, and classes are canceled indefinitely, and uh, controllers mid-training might have to go back and restart. I mean, it is a significant impact to uh the staffing levels that were already very constrained due to retirements. Right. We're already looking at about 1,000 to 2,000 controllers short countrywide. It, it is a big deal. I think NATCA is uh, publicizing. Oh, another, another abbreviation. What's that stand for? At NATCA is the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. It's I, a powerful group, too. I, I think they've been um, uh, raising to the public what the effect could be on the uh, on the workforce in the future. The other thing that a lot of folks might not understand, I think general aviation pilots do understand, but the traveling public might not, but the, the airlines like Delta and Southwest and the manufacturers like Boeing, these companies provide billions of dollars into our economy, and they have huge workforces. I know Boeing itself has 40,000 people that work over there in uh, in Washington State. Yep, it, it is. It's a big workforce. And, um, you know, to get back to your original question about what is the impact of general aviation, there's, there's a large impact to Cessna, to Textron, to these aviation aircraft manufacturers that, you know, we know and love of these brands. But, you know, it's at the company level, the worker level within those companies, and then certainly at the individual with the pilot themselves, whether student pilot, glider pilot, uh, ATP, you know, first class medicals, everything. The whole range of aviation is affected. So just as we're recording the podcast today, um, just as of a couple of days ago, folks were again able to take their check rides, basically. Right. Yeah, it's a continuing evolution. Some good. Sometimes the uh, the furloughed employees are being brought back. We saw a number of uh, safety uh, specialists brought back. But as this goes further and further on, more people are affected and um, there's more consequences. Well, let's talk about one or two of them. What about medical certification? Now, this now if I've if I'm flying under. Uh, under third-class medical, and I, I, I think I'm in good shape. Well, so if you're not expiring... I'm not. ...then you're good to go. You continue to fly as normal. If you have an expiration within this time frame, there could be impacts um, because of the shutdown at Oklahoma City of the medical office. But that's largely going to be for special issuances and other things. If you're just an average person, uh, you might this might be invisible to you. But now, uh, and Ian and I talked about this on a previous podcast. A, a good friend of mine flies with a special issuance because he has some um, color blindness issues. So he had to get that special issuance done. And if he had not, assumably, if he had not done this ahead of time and was attempting to do it now, what would happen? 
Yeah, and that's that's a good question. And we actually have a special call center specifically for medical issues. I know they've been taking a lot of calls. And unfortunately, some of the medical review boards that were scheduled, like for um, people dealing with cardiac issues, uh -huh. have been canceled. And so depending on your condition, I would say it depends. And mm -hmm. so our call center is in the best position to provide that information. At, at AOPA, the PIC, Pilot Information Center. Gotcha. All right. Now, what about closed FSDO? So FSD. What's the FSDO stand for? So that's uh, the Flight Standards District Office, and these are the the buildings we usually interface with at at a local level. And uh, a lot of the specialists there have been furloughed. Those that have been um, brought back are at the manager level or at a level where they're only dealing with safety critical issues. These guys are not dealing with um, routine paperwork or anything that we might call an inconvenience. They're dealing with very serious safety critical mission essential items. So if I have, I don't know, let's just say I have a Mooney airplane and I wanted to put something on there that required a field approval, for instance, and I might be asking you something outside of your realm of expertise, but I'm wondering if, if maybe the staffing levels might put a little bit of a of a backlog on something like that, because that would not be mission critical. That would be Dave T. wants to put some cool gadget on his airplane. Absolutely. And it's not just uh, at, at Dave T. level. It's flight schools. Flight schools uh, are, are having trouble. There's large corporate operators. We've heard reports of um, medical evacuation aircraft that cannot get certified and approved to fly patients. Oh, my. So it's public safety. There's there's a number of ramifications if the FAA can't deal with uh, routine paperwork. And now something that is definitely in your realm of airspace, what about um, ADSB and some of the rebate checks? So this is another topic. We've gotten a lot of calls, um, and that's because people have not been getting either their GARES number or um, the check. And so with the rebate, there is manual components of it, including the FAA needs to be there to manually approve the checks. And there is no one there at FAA to approve the checks. And unfortunately, the contractors who were working the help desk and the rebate email, most of them were given a stop work order, and we're expecting all of them to get a stop work order very shortly. So this is the rebate check that sort of entices people to get on board and get that ADSB installed. Exactly. So, um, so far, we haven't heard many impacts of people actually installing ADSB. There's impacts to the rebate, but we can assure people the government will provide the check once they're back. And we can assure people that right now the mandate stands. Okay. We, we do not see any impact to 2020 changing. So you better equip by the, by the deadline or else still. Or else, yeah, and that, that's essentially if you want to fly in the airspace, ADSB is required, okay. um, but not all airspace requires it. Right, that's a good point, actually. Hey, well, why don't we go into that real quick? Um, I, know this, I know we were talking about the shutdown, but you have a lot of experience in this, and there are a couple of places um, there, where there are several instances where, where you don't really need ADSB. Just can you highlight them real quick? Sure. A lot of the rural states have very little ADSB airspace. Okay. Um, and Alaska as well. The only place in Alaska you need ADSB is to fly in the uh, Anchorage International Class C airspace. So you don't even need a Juno. You don't even need a Juno. And uh, but there's locations like Hawaii, right? Honolulu International has Class B airspace, so it has a Mode C veil. Right. And the Mode C veil requires ADSB. So pretty much the whole island of Oahu 
is covered by an ADSB mandate. That makes sense. Yep. And so areas of the Gulf of Mexico as well, but um, largely it's your your busy airspace. And the easy way to answer this question is wherever you need a transponder, you need ADSB. Okay. That is a good way to answer that question. Now, we, we have heard a little bit about um, acts of kindness. You and I talked about that a couple of minutes ago with, uh, with pizzas delivered to some ATC facilities, things like that. What, I mean, is there anything else that we could do to help folks who are in the aviation field that are government employees? I mean, what can we do to support them? Well, since they are government employees, it's important to remember the, uh, the laws that say we can't give federal employees gifts over a certain amount. But, you know, just telling them we're here to support you. We as an aviation family understand. But it's also important to tell your congress member, hey, this, this affects me. This affects people's livelihoods. And it's important we find a resolution quickly. You know, uh, one thing that we can do, we talked about this a minute ago, is to, to tip our hats a little bit on the radio. We don't, we don't want to jam up the airwaves too much, but it doesn't hurt to hear every once in a while a little thank you when you're signing off and going to a different frequency. And, and these, these individuals are professionals, and they will remain at the mic um, as long as they can, but there's undoubtedly hardships. Gotcha. Now, um, a couple of things are coming up that are some key initiatives. We're going to switch gears a little bit as we wrap up the program. There's some key initiatives for 2019 that your group is heavily involved with. Do you want to hit some of the highlights of that with us, Rune? Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll quickly summarize a few of the ones in my area. And one would be uh, expediting cross-border operations. A lot of pilots going to the Caribbean, going to Mexico, going to Canada. And we're looking at ways to uh, make it more efficient to do so whether it's new apps that interface with EAPIS and makes it all so much easier. Uh, EAPIS, what's that? The uh, Electronic uh, Advanced Oh, man, stump the professor. But now here's <laughs> the thing. EAPIS, is a, it's the form, right? It's the yes. electronic form that you fill out before you go across the border. That's right. And um, specifically in areas like Canada, where uh -huh. it might be a little low risk, when you come back from Canada, you know, why do you need to go to a port of entry if you're a seaplane, Right. Um, maybe you could clear at whatever lake you land at. Oh, I see your point. Remotely clearing. I see your point. And so some other risk-based approaches is what we're looking at, and CBP has been very open at looking at those possibilities. The other thing, uh, going back a little bit to the government shutdown, at the border operations areas, now some of these places have limited hours, so they have limited their hours during this shutdown. So if you're used to doing a regular run across to Canada and back and say from the, the northern U.S., so you kind of need to check the hours of these different stations. Yeah, that's important to note, and, and as well as um, increased workload at the southern border. Uh, with just an, an increasing influx of individuals, right. a lot of the northern border ports have provided additional uh, personnel to the southern border, just like the Coast Guard oh, I didn't know has that. sent additional personnel to the southern border. Okay. That may, well, that makes sense. you got to go where you know go where it's dictated, and, where, and the, where the greatest need is. Right, and certainly resources are needed. I got you. All right, well, let's get back to, um, to the, some of the initiatives. You, or you were going to, I think, talk to us a little bit about flight service modernization. Yeah, and this is uh, a service a lot of pilots still use, whether you're calling flight service or you're using their website to file a flight plan, or if you're using a service like maybe ForeFlight, who files via Lidos Flight Service. Uh -huh. They do a lot of transactions, and so it's important we keep the service modernized, whether it's Alaska or in the continental United States and Hawaii and Puerto Rico. Um, and so that's a big effort this next year is to realize some of those modernization efforts. 
All right. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Lidos is a contractor with the government, right? Yes, they, they are. They are still working, right? They are still working, and uh, they are a safety-critical service, so they will continue to okay. work. Okay. All right. Well, that puts, puts my mind at ease right there. Now, we talked a little bit about ADSB equipage increasing, it's in, even in light of uh, the current government situation. Are there any tips that you want to provide our podcast listeners with as far as ADSB coming up really in 12 months? Yeah, so I, w- I would say uh, on AOPA's website, we have the selector tool. Um, use the tool. It goes through a number of uh, questions, and it will pretty much come up with a, a good answer of what system might suit your needs. And then the FAA's website has a full list of every piece of equipment that is certified for your aircraft, your airframe specifically. So do your homework and start finding a solution now because it's January and there's only a few months left. And if you want to fly next January in this airspace, you you really need to reserve a slot in an installation shop pretty soon. Yeah, that is critical. And and getting on board and getting uh, getting it scheduled is the name of the game to keep things moving. Rune, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. Is there anything else you want to chat about that I didn't bring up? I know there's a lot on your plate. No, I think that's enough with the shutdown. We'll continue to make sure our membership's aware um, and continue to fight for general aviation. Rune Duke, we appreciate you appearing with us on uh, Hangar Talk on the podcast, and we'll look forward to talking and chatting with you in the future. Good luck on that multi, uh, multi-engine rating, by the way. Thank you very much. Dave, you may not know, I had Rune's job at one point. No, you did not. For real. I did. I did. I did. I did. I, it was like 2007, I think. And I, let's just say, I'm really glad Rune is doing it because I was terrible. Uh, <laughs> so no wonder you're so good at all these abbreviations and acronyms, and yeah. I'm usually having yeah. to look them up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, those guys, the work they do, I'm just, uh, I'm in awe of what they're able to accomplish. And uh, I'm so glad that Rune is on the team and, and helping AOPA members. Yeah, they're truly, that team is the unsung heroes of AOPA. And every chance I get at fly-ins and elsewhere, I let people know that there are a lot of folks that work behind the scenes to keep the airspace available to us pilots. And these guys are uh, guys and gals are working tirelessly. And, and you really, you just never see them. You, we hear about it when there's an issue, but when there's no issue, you know, we just things just go sailing along. So yes, a big tip of the hat to uh, to AOPA and the folks who are lobbying the FAA and keeping an eye on airspace and regulations to make things easier for all of us. Yeah. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We are also on the Sporties Takeoff app, and we're also on iTunes. All right. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Thanks. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.